Welcome to the Jesus Church Podcast. We're a family seeking to become like Jesus, empowered by His presence, to partner in God's creative work of restoring the world. We pray this episode encourages and equips you along the journey. Yeah, my name is Shelby. I'm on our teaching team here at the church, and I'm so excited to get into the text that we're going to be unpacking this morning. Last week, we started a brand new series called Undivided, and uh, this series, we're going to be spending the next 10 weeks in it unpacking what it means for us to live lives of, of worship to worship God with undivided hearts. And Tim did an incredible job kicking things off last week. If you didn't get a chance to check it out, please go back and do so because he laid uh, some really important foundation. He laid the groundwork for this series with a foundational truth that we're gonna build off today and continue to return back to in the weeks ahead. And the truth is this, that you and I were created to worship God with undivided hearts. It's how we were made. We're hardwired for worship. It's not a question of if we worship, but rather of who or what we are worshiping. We're made to worship, made to worship God. Last week, we looked at how when we worship God, He is glorified and we actually become more of who we were created to be. We talked about how our undivided worship of God is also directly connected to his creative power and purposes being revealed and unleashed on the earth as it is in heaven. The Westminster Catechism sums this idea up well when it says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You know, something that I've noticed that I find really interesting is that when we talk about worship, we have a tendency to start and, and kind of focus on the how of our worship, how we worship. We talk about how we should worship him with more instruments or less instruments or for the purists, no instruments. We, we talk about how it's too loud, it's too quiet. We talk about how we should worship God with passion and with a deep desire and longing to draw near and stay near to God. Even around this church, we talk a lot about how when we come together and gather, we don't want to just talk about Jesus. We wanna meet with him. We wanna pursue him with real desire and a longing to meet with the living God. Most of which all I say yes and amen. Like it's, that's good. But it begs this question, what if desire and passion aren't enough? What if pursuing God's presence based on our preferences and our level of passion is actually something standing in the way of encountering his presence? What if our starting place, focusing on the how, is in some ways inhibiting inhibiting God from inhabiting our worship, our praise. Here's the thing, in a culture that is quite obsessed with measuring beauty and success by what we can see and evaluate with the physical eye, it makes sense that you and I often fall prey to allowing our outward expression of our worship cloud and eclipse the object of our worship. So today I wanna invite you to reevaluate your starting place 
to shift your focus from the how of worship to the who of our worship. The how is important, don't get me wrong, and we're gonna get there, we're gonna talk about expression and the outworking of our worship, but so as not to put the cart before the horse, we're gonna spend these first few weeks in our series searching the scriptures to discover and rediscover the one who sits at the very center of our worship, the one who all of our praise and all of our adoration is directed, the one who sits on the throne, surrounded by a constant choir of angels crying, holy, 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 they can't get enough of him. We're gonna spend the rest of our days crying out, holy, 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 why is that? So we're asking the question, who is this God? Who is this God and how does our understanding of his character and his nature lead and shape the how we worship, both on a Sunday morning when we're singing praise and also Monday through Saturday when we're living our lives? How do, what, what are, what's the connection between the who and the how? So the aspect of God's character and nature that we're gonna focus on today is his holiness that the God that we worship, he is a holy God. If you're taking notes, that's note number one. We worship a holy God. In Psalm 24, the psalmist takes uh, a second to ask a similar question to us. David in Psalm 24 asks, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Built into the question and perhaps the reason for the question in the first place is this recognition from David, this recognition that God is holy and wherever his presence is, is a holy place. God is holy. The word holy in Hebrew is kadesh. Can you say kadesh? Kadesh means holy, set apart, sacred. It means something that is completely other. To be holy is to be set apart, sacred. It's the exact opposite of something that is common. God is perfect. As James 1 says, God is pure light in whom there's no variation. There's no shadow in him. This word holy, it's pregnant with this sense of sacredness and consecration. When Moses was thinking of uh, what word to use to describe the most important place in the tabernacle where God's presence would literally live among the people, he called it the holy of holies. There's no better word, no better description, the holy of holies. And in Psalm 24, David, he doesn't just recognize that God is holy. Don't miss this. He understands that God's holiness means that you can't just waltz right into his presence. You can't just walk right into his presence like it's no big deal. So who he asks may ascend the mountain of the Lord to which he then says, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God. This is why when I... In Isaiah 6, when Isaiah has this vision of, of the Lord seated on the throne and sees those angels surrounding the throne saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. He rightly responds. He sees this vision and he rightly responds by crying out, woe to me, 
for I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. God is holy, set apart. He's not one among many. He's not some cosmic butler that's here to serve our needs and that if we just call too loud enough, he'll come at our becking call. In other words, desire, passion, wanting God's presence is not enough. We need clean hands and a pure, undivided heart because as Psalm 24 declares, God our God is the king of glory. Glory in Hebrew is kavod, it means the weight, the value of God's presence. He's the king of glory, the Lord of angel armies, strong and mighty and his glory, his value, no one can fathom. The earth and all that is in it cannot contain the glory of our God. Both the psalmist David and, and Isaiah, they recognize God's holiness. And that recognition reveals to them their desperate need to be made clean and pure in order to stand in his holy presence. They understand something that we often forget, which is that entering into the presence of a holy God with unclean lips and an impure heart whose worship is divided among many lovers is dangerous. Don't miss that. The presence of God is dangerous. We tend to forget this. In church, we jump straight to Jesus. We've grown so familiar with that sweet baby Jesus, that sweet baby Jesus who took on flesh and walked the earth as a human. And, and we've just lost, we've lost sight of God's holy majesty. God, the supreme ruler of heaven and earth, the very source of all light and life who like the sun is both beautiful and radiant while at the same time, anything that comes close to its orbit will be destroyed, obliterated. I think forgetting this leads to a sort of like lopsidedness in our understanding and how we approach God. We lose sight of this tension that we have to exist in this tension that we have to hold that yes, God has come near. Praise the Lord. That's why we want to jump straight to Jesus. <clears throat> he's Emmanuel, God with us, and he's holy. And we have to hold that tension in balance. We have to live in that tension so that we are kept from growing so familiar with his nearness that we forget the severity of his holiness. The good news of Jesus is actually that much better when we recognize and remember how bad the bad news is, which is that we're all sinners. Every single one of us. Yes, we are created good. That's our starting place. God made us good. He made us in his image and that image is still very much intact in all of us and it's broken. Human sin it pollutes God's good world. It's like something that comes in and infects and the effect of that infection touches not only the sinner, but an entire community of people. Sin makes us unclean and impure and therefore unable 
to enter into the presence of a just and holy God. For as Romans 6, 23 says, the wages of sin, the result of sin is death. From the moment Adam and Eve sin, God's presence becomes dangerous to us. This is why when they sin, they hide. What do they do? They hide, they, they find leaves and they try to cover themselves. But the leaves weren't enough. The result of sin is death. And so God in his great love, go back and read the text, Genesis three. God in his great love for his children makes an animal sacrifice. Leaves weren't gonna cut it to cover their sin. The covering or the forgiveness of sin as Hebrews 9.22 says requires the shedding of blood. And this animal sacrifice It's God's response to spare the lives of the people that he loves so that he can remain in relationship with him. And it's a foreshadowing of what's to come. Unfortunately, you and I, we tend to read and understand the sacrificial system that God put in place for his people through the lens of pagan practice and Greek mythology. And when we do that, I'll explain what I mean. When we do that, we end up with a version of the story that sounds something like this. God is holy, you are not. Therefore, to appease God's anger, his wrath, he has to kill you. But because he's kind, he'll let you trade. You can bring him this animal and he'll let the animal die instead of you. And thank God for Jesus who finally came to die so that we wouldn't have to. Oh, and good news, we don't have to keep killing all those animals anymore and we can live happily ever after in heaven and not hell. That tends to be the story that we have in our minds, but that's not the story. The story, that story, is a distorted picture of God's character that skews the sacrificial system that he put in place as something that is very dark and twisted instead of it being the biblical portrayal of God's love that it truly is. The sacrificial system that's described in those books of the Bible that you and I tend to like blitz past or skip over altogether in our Bible reading plans. The book, it lays out the sacrificial system and it's about God making good on his promise. His promise to restore and extend divine blessing to the nations through his chosen people. Instead of destroying them, he makes a way for them to be made pure and clean through animal sacrifice. The death of an animal, it was a symbol. It was a reminder of the severe consequences of sin, life or death for a people. But more than that, the animal was a symbolic substitute. God's justice and holiness demands that the consequences of sin, which is death, be dealt with. He's a just God. But God's love and his grace moves him to show mercy and that he allows the animal's life to pay the debt, to cover and cleanse them from their sin. Ultimately, Ultimately, this story is about a God who wants and knows what is best for his people because he loves them. He doesn't wanna see them suffer the consequences of their sins. He wants to live in covenant relationship with them. Love, not anger, moves the heart of God to rescue his people. 
Isaiah and the psalmist point to this reality that passion for God isn't enough. Why? Because passion is not the same as being clean or pure or holy enough to be in God's presence. As pastor and Old Testament scholar Susie Silk says, we cannot safely dwell in the presence of a holy God without recognizing his holiness and our need to be made clean and holy through his cleansing work. And I know that saying things like that out loud, they can make us feel kind of uncomfortable. Here's what's interesting though. This is a hard truth, but this is so interesting to me. We're living in a cultural moment that is hyper-conscious of welcoming and honoring people based on the way they want to be welcomed and honored. We're so sensitive. We recognize that the language that's used to to describe one's gender, one's abilities, one's race, ethnicity, background, et cetera, it's a delicate matter. And I think that there's a lot of good in that level of awareness. I think that there's goodness in that. But that same level of careful recognition and awareness of how one wants to be welcomed seems to fall through the cracks when we think about it in terms of how God might want to be welcomed. Instead, we want him to show up on our terms. When we want, how we want, as if our neighbor deserves more honor and respect than the God who made us and that neighbor. The God of the universe who created all things, whose glory cannot be contained. Oh, let us not make the mistake that our neighbor or that we deserve more careful attention and recognition to how we ought to be honored than how we enter into and honor the living God. Woo. Yeah, some of you are getting it. (laughs) Back in February, I heard about what was happening in this small town that was just an hour and a half from the town that I grew up in. And I just felt so compelled. I I don't even know what I was doing. I was probably doing nothing, but I just had this overwhelming desire to reach out to my four cousins who all live in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, three of which are graduating seniors, one a sophomore in college. I just felt compelled to reach out and see if they would come with me to go to Asbury. By the time I landed, they had all said yes. I booked a flight out the next few days. I made my way. And we all got in the car and headed to Asbury where together, we as a family got to witness the latest and the largest outpouring of God's presence that's taken place in our country. And then in May, I got to go to London where it just so happened that a core group of students and leaders from the Asbury outpouring were there to teach at the very same conference that I was there to participate in. And then two weeks later, after we got home from London, I was back at Asbury to teach at a conference about awakening that I had been scheduled to teach at in 2022. In some ways, all of the travel that I've been doing in the last six months has kind of felt like scoping out the land. I just, like God in his kindness is like, hey, I want you to go scope at the land. And I feel like I'm here today to tell you what I got to see what I got to witness to report back to you what I'm seeing God do everywhere I've been. Back to back to back these trips, I got to hear testimony after testimony of how God had poured out his presence in the simplest, most tender, most miraculous ways 
And every single story had within it this Isaiah 6 moment. This moment where a person was essentially crying out, woe to me, I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. If I could sum up my travel report, it would be this, that God is holy, holy, holy. So repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Sure, all the testimonies I heard, they didn't all quote Isaiah directly, but they all described a similar moment. This holy moment where they realized the holiness of God and they were moved to confession. Not shamed into confession, not guilt-tripped into confession, moved to confession, moved to come to the altar for woe is me, a man of unclean lips, a woman of unclean lips. Moved to confession. If you go back and you read or you listen to any of the eyewitnesses accounts of, of revivals and awakenings that have happened and broken, broken out throughout history, they always include, every single one of them includes this moment where people fall under the conviction of sin. When I walked into Hughes Auditorium in Asbury, the first thing I noticed were these large words plated in gold, hanging over the pipe organ that read, holiness unto the Lord. Holiness unto the Lord. In that room and in so many very ordinary rooms throughout the ages, it has been the manifest presence of God's holiness drawing near that leads to people weeping and falling under the weight of his glory. I was reminded this morning in pre-gathering prayer of this image of my mom. I don't think I've ever been in a gathering, a church gathering with my mom where I don't look over and she's weeping. Holiness unto the Lord, when, you, when his presence draws near, you can't help but fall under the conviction of sin. Not in a way that shames you, but in a way that just draws you in even more because he's holy, holy, holy. weeping, people falling under the weight of his glory. The psalmist says, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? Who could stand? So how can we stand? How can you and I stand in his holy presence without dying, for real? How do we have the clean hands and the pure hearts that are required to worship God rightly? That's the question that we're gonna spend the last few minutes of our time together asking. And it's an important question, so don't check out. Like, if you need to move your body, just move your body a little bit. Don't, don't check out. In John chapter one, as soon as John sees Jesus coming toward him, what does he say? Sup, dude? So glad we get to hang today. No, that's not what he says. He says, behold, look. Up and look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God. John goes on to say later, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is so good. My words didn't feel like they even came close to being able to unpack this part of the story. So I'm gonna leave it to Paul in Hebrews 10 to connect the dots. It's so good. Paul says this in Hebrews 10. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will, we, you and me have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Therefore, he goes on, therefore, brothers and sisters, because of all that, because of his great sacrifice, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. Might I say, an undivided heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Wow. How are you and I made clean? How are we made pure? so that we can enter into the presence of a holy God, Jesus. Jesus declared himself to be pure and blameless, the pure and blameless sacrifice that we needed, a sacrifice more sufficient than that of slaughtered animals. And he said, I am the way. I'm not a way, I am the way. I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is how we enter into the presence of a holy God, through Jesus. Friends, God wants us to live in his presence. He wants to be near. He is Emmanuel, God with us. So how do we worship him? How do we enter into his presence? Just a couple closing thoughts. Number one, how does God want to be welcomed? He wants us to recognize and acknowledge that he is holy. Worshiping God with an undivided heart, it starts with recognizing the holiness of God. And this means approaching God on his terms, 
How do we do that? By accepting his blood atonement that covers us and makes us clean. Have you said yes to Jesus? I know a lot of us in this room today have. But for those of you who have not, today is the day we're gonna open up the waters of baptism. It starts with this, it starts with a yes. And for all of those who have said yes, let us not forget that it is not a one-time yes. It is an everyday, moment by moment, yes, acknowledging our great need for his cleansing sacrifice, continually confessing and repenting of our sin so that we can enter into his presence rightly. Doing good doesn't earn us his presence. But confessing our sin helps us enter into it. We can stand in the presence of a holy God because we are held in the hands of a suffering savior. One of the nameless leaders that helped shepherd what was happening at Asbury described how all over the room, all through the night, at all hours of the night, people were having these profound encounters with the love of God. And he said this, but it wasn't a soft love. It was God unearthing and confronting and calling out brokenness in love. It was the kindness of the Lord leading to repentance. He went on to talk about how the longer and harder they sought after the presence of God, the more they recognized their need for confession and consecration. And so a key innovation of the Asbury outpouring was what they called the consecration room. It was a place where worship leaders and people who were gonna go speak would come into this room and they were invited into a compassionate but uncompromising call to repentance and deep humility before entering the leadership and leading in the assembly because they recognized the holiness of God and they made the conscious decision to elevate and value the hidden realities of their lives and the closets of their closeness with Jesus more highly than the appearance, talent, or persona of man. No wonder God was pleased to dwell there. Through confession and repentance, we align our hearts and lives with the truth that we have clean hands and a pure heart only because they've been washed in the blood of Jesus. So what might you need to confess today? Like so often we try to run away from confession and repentance because we think that that's what keeps us from God, but it's actually the acknowledgement of those things that allows us to enter into his presence because then we, our hands are open to receive. Our hands are open to receive the washing that we need. Before I taught this message, I was like, oh man, I knew that I had to spend time in confession before God. And while I was doing that, while I was in that space, praying, confessing, James 5.16 popped into my head, which talks about how you need to confess your sin one to another and you will be healed. And I was like, dang, I gotta call my friend. I gotta call my friend, I gotta let her into my sin. So my sweet friend, she came over and we just sat up on our balcony and we confessed our sin one to another. Did I wanna do that? No, I did not wanna do that. But that's the second part of what it means to worship God with an uninvited heart. Number two, listen and obey. Listen and obey. Leviticus 11.44 says, for I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore, and be holy, for I am holy, 
Unless you think that this is just an Old Testament command, let me point you to the New Testament where Peter picks up on this. After Jesus has died for our sin, and he says, hey, his sacrifice requires a response, 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all of your behavior. This is why worship isn't just about songs that we sing on Sunday. It's your whole life. And sometimes we hear be holy as God is holy and we think like I did when James 5, 16 popped in my head. We're like, dang it. This is so restrictive. This is all about like what I can and can't say, what I can and can't wear and ain't nobody gonna tell me those things. We think that obedience is about restriction for the sake of restriction, when in reality, it's about love. It's about trust. Trusting that the one who calls you also loves you and he knows what is best for you. He knows. It's like we stop at that, that line in the scriptures, confess your sins one to another. We just stop there like that's the end of the story, when in reality, it's not. It goes on to say, what happens when we do that? Healing blessing. And it's true. I've experienced it. I feel like I'm standing here today with more desire and passion for his presence because I've experienced and I need to and will continue to experience the saving and healing work of God at work in and through my life. Obedience is a key and crucial part of our worship. James 2, 26 points out for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. Obedience is one of the best ways we can welcome God in his presence. Second Chronicles 714 lays this out. God tells us how he wants to be wanted, how he wants to be welcomed. It says this, if my people, if we who are called by his name will humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. This is how God wants to be wanted and welcomed. Desire and passion are not enough. Recognizing his holiness and the sacrifice of Jesus that makes us holy, and by seeking to live with hearts set on giving our yes to God day in and day out, this is how we welcome him. When we do that, the good news is that living on God's terms, not our own, living, seeking him, not based on our preferences or our level of passion, you know what it means? It means healing. It means blessing. Sure, maybe not in an instant, maybe not in the way that you expected, but it is a promise. Healing and blessing. David, who wrote Psalm 24, he says in another psalm, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. He says, your love, Lord, is better than life. David wanted to enter the courts. He knew that that place was better than anything. It was a sweeter love than any other kind of love. David wanted the courts. Friends, his presence is here. 
His, his presence lives with us. It lives in us. He is here, he longs to be with you. And better is one day in his house, better is one day, one moment in his presence than a thousands elsewhere. Pursuing a career is good, work is good, pursuing your dreams are good, but let us never forget that what we will spend the rest of our days doing is joining into the choir of the angels, singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at jesuschurch.org.